You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, try to read the notes, in spite of the fact that Emily forgot her curtains. <laughs> if you're watching YouTube, you can see that right now. <laughs> Eventually, I'm going to remember to get curtains, but I'm never at this desk at this time unless we're recording. And then it doesn't exist, you know? You need to, <laughs> you need to put a reminder on your phone. <laughs> what? Make the technology work for me? <laughs> Yeah, just say, Siri, remind me. Yeah, I know. You're so much better than that. There's just enough age difference that, like, you got the technology side of things, and I'm still, like, card catalogs. So, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I like, I like both of those things, but, um, I finally, I mean, I just had, I, I finally got to the point where, I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, this is kind of my surrogate brain. Um, the, the iPhone, like, I, I, I work maintenance at the school and people ask me for things and I, I tell them like, unless like make sure you see me put it in my reminders app because I check this all the time because right. I've got, I've got a hundred different things to do. Um, I love my job. Uh, I just, I have a lot of tasks there. And so I'm like either text it to me or make sure I see it in the reminders app because if I can't go reference it, uh, it might get lost, just or, or be prepared to remind me again, which I don't mind. They, they, you know, if they have to tell me again, it's all good. My problem is that if it's in my phone, I forget it's in my phone, and so like if I write it down on paper, like my brain holds it better. So, if, and typically that works. I just have to remember to write it down. That's that's where the issue comes in. Is... Well, that's why when you say, well, that's why when you say Siri, remind me to do such and such at such and such time. Like she'll make a noise. Like well, the phone will make a that noise. That implies and you. I've got a schedule. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It means you scheduled a thing. It doesn't mean that. Does not imply a huge spreadsheet. Or you can you can even do it based on location. You can. Say, I know. Yeah. Hey, Siri, remind me to do this when I get home. I forgot that. Yeah. It. It. That is an option. I'm just. Yeah. I'm just bad. It's like technology is just. It's something I use when I absolutely have to, and then the rest of the time. Like, I am so old school. It's not even funny. I still like my paper calendars, still like my, yeah, things I can manipulate. And I don't feel like I'm actually manipulating anything if it's in the cyber universe because I'm not actually touching anything. I'm not moving anything. So <sighs> I, I, I get that, but it, it takes some getting used to, and, it, and you just have to kind of build into your routine. Check my reminders list. I know. Um, so, yeah, this, this episode not brought to you, well, brought to you on Apple technology, but not, not a sponsor. But they um, should be. Uh, so. uh, I, I would love that. Um, that would be really cool if we could get... I could well, buy curtains. I mean, I don't know about getting a sponsor. <laughs> Maybe if they just decided to be an anonymous benefactor. I mean, I would still talk up their products. I mean, they're... They they make a good product, that's for sure. Well, it's all we use, but I mostly just we, got into the Apple stuff because you had it, and I knew you could explain it to me better than if I got something you didn't have. See, that's how my brain works. Yeah, <laughs> and I got into the Apple stuff because I got tired of buying a new computer every two years. Right, right. I mean, that's just me. Um, yeah, just... I know. I know all of our Windows listeners are, are groaning somewhere <laughs> and you know the people who love windows good on you um i just but i have I a mac from two i have a mac from 2009 that still works but you it know it doesn't work very well but it still works <laughs> i had somebody ask um you know they're getting ready to get a new phone and if they had used apple and for a long time and they were asking if they should switch to droid and i'm like basically i'm convinced that stuff like that, it's whatever one you started out with that you like. 
And like making the leap takes a real commitment to making the change because I had a droid tablet for like all of five minutes and I just wanted to throw it against the wall. And so, I mean, okay, it was a little longer than that, but mm, no, not. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, yeah. And and that's, you know, as far as the stuff that I do, Apple works. I know that uh, there are people uh, who are hardcore Windows fans who will tell me all the things that the Apple operating system will not let me control and change. I don't need to control and change those. That's it. For the stuff I do. That's, That's where it. Exactly. I am. Exactly. I don't want to learn to I don't want to learn to be a programmer. I don't want to have to adjust all this stuff. Um most of the apps I use are produced by Apple, so they work on the system that mm-hmm. Apple makes. Um yeah. Anyway, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure everybody wanted to hear all that. Um, right. All that to say, Emily, curtains. Yeah. It, well, it's shifted now, so now I can actually see. You know, it just takes it like a second. Um, it's bad. Anyway. Um, well, did we stall long enough for you to see your notes? I can that... see my notes, yes. <laughs> uh, it's behind them. The sun is behind this one little branch, and if it'll just keep following it up, we're, we'll be good. So, yeah. Uh, Anyway, we are still in First Kings. We're in Chapter 7. We're still talking about Solomon's Temple. Uh, and some of this is, I just had a chance to play this week uh, and do just like some random research. So y'all just kind of hang on for the ride uh, because this is actually kind of intersects with a lot of my interest as far as like the artistic side of things. And um, well, we'll get there because the... Before that, we got to finish Solomon's, his own personal buildings. And so uh, we were talking last week about how we've got this account of the temple building. And then there's this break where we focus on Solomon's buildings, his palace and other things that he built. And then we go back to the temple. And so why did the writer decide to make this crazy little interjection that seems to have like no bearing with the topic at hand? And... I had suggested that possibly, and other scholars have have suggested the same thing, possibly it's to make you do the comparison of what Solomon was building for himself versus what Solomon built for God. And so obviously the man had major resources at his disposal and that the temple was amazing, but in every respect, his uh, Solomon's own palace and own buildings that he used for his purposes are actually bigger. They're more impressive. And the only only reason why they're less impressive or would be less impressive is we don't have any accounts of all the gold leaf or gold plating or however the, the temple was finished, which, you know, we talked about that debate. So um, we kind of finished up with his palace, but now we're talking about, we're getting into verse six, and he made a hall of pillars. And the Hall of Pillars is not, it's part of the palace, but it's not the palace. It's not what has been discussed before. It is a separate building. And verse 6 says, he made a Hall of Pillars. Its length was 50 cubits. Its breadth was 30 cubits. And there was a porch in in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. So, you know. This is some pretty impressive measurements, because if you go back and you think about the temple, the temple's 60 cubits in length. The house of the forest of Lebanon, Solomon's palace, that's 100 cubits in length. And now we have this hall of pillars that's 50 cubits in uh, length. The the breadth of the temple was 20. The palace was 50. And now the house of pillars is 30. And we don't have a height on the house of pillars, but we do have uh, the height of the house and the temple were both the same. So the hall of pillars uh, was a kind of like a wing on um, Solomon's palace complex. And it's pretty much has the same square footage as the temple. And it's maybe not as tall. We aren't told. It really doesn't matter. But we know that there's this porch with a canopy and, you know, it's, it's an impressive structure and he doesn't stop there. In verse seven, we're told he makes a hall of the throne, which he was to, which, where he was to pronounce judgment. And even the hall of judgment, it was finished with cedar from the Florida rafters. So this verse has caused some debate because uh, some people are saying these are two different buildings, which to me, that's how it reads, that we have the Hall of the Throne and then we have the Hall of Judgment, two two separate places. Some people are saying it's the same building. 
I, I lean towards two because why would we give it two different names in the same verse? Uh, well, in, in the, um, in the ESV renders it, he made a hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment. Yeah, and then so I don't know. If look the at the Hebrew... next clause. Is the next clause say even the hall of judgment? Because that's what my ESV says. So it's where he's pronounced judgment, even the hall of judgment. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I I can see that. Yeah, and... so I was I was <laughs> I don't know. To me, if if you render it that way, I would think of it as just the same name for. Two names for the same thing as was my initial reading, but well, whatever. I, I, but it, it makes. I'm open to either one. Well, and it does make sense because the throne is the place where the king would render his judgments from. So it it makes sense that it would serve both functions. That it would be a place where the throne was, where the people would come and see him, and they would you know get to talk to the king, and then he would render judgments. So from that perspective absolutely it um it sounds like it could be two buildings uh, one building and if that's the case you know you can actually see why in the world would you need two separate buildings for the same thing essentially but um one possibility and this is suggested in a targum is that the hall of judgment would have been like an antechamber where um basically people coming to the king to get his judgment and hear his divine wisdom would be kind of vetted, you know, kind of mm -hmm. to see if they were, had a claim that warranted the king's wisdom, if they really needed to take it as high as the king uh, in order to get a judgment, or could one of the other elders or counselors that Solomon may have had in his court would have taken care of that. So they would go to the hall of judgment, be vetted, and then if they were deemed worthy, then they would go on through into the king's throne room where they would talk to him. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's, like I said, a suggestion. I don't think there's going to be a definitive answer. Um, I think we just have some really, you know, we've got some room for speculation there, but I don't think it's important. Again, these places where you've got this ambiguity, the reason why you have ambiguity isn't because somebody's trying to trick you. It's because it probably wasn't important. I mean, it's, it really is that simple. And I don't think we have to, to get all up in arms. Um, so the um the thing about the judgment this has always been one of the responsibilities of the leaders of Israel and it goes all the way back to to Moses and you know Moses was having problems and Jethro his father-in-law had to stand up and say hey look you're doing too much let's appoint judges let's appoint elders to hear these cases and make rulings and then if they need to come to you then we can send them to you and they can get a, a, a higher ruling, if you will, or a ruling from a higher court. Now, when the people asked for a king in 1 Samuel 8, they identified the purpose of a king as someone who gives judgment. That's uh, Samuel 8, verse 5. It says, now appoint for us a king to judge us like other nations. And the Bible specifically says in verse 6, but they dis this this <laughs> Goodness gracious, came a read. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us, because Samuel was a judge. I mean, we had this whole period of time mm -hmm. where the land was ruled by nothing but judges. So, very much interlocking concept this idea of leadership, wisdom, judgment, all to, they all went together. They were a package deal. And one's right or ability to judge was based on their wisdom. And we got to remember, too, kings at this time period were at the very least representatives of their gods that they served in that country, or they were the embodiment of the god, they were a direct descendant from the god. It kind of just depends on, you know, start looking at different time periods and um, what was specific to that time period. But all of it began as the kings were supposed to be the offspring of the gods. And this allowed them to be vessels for this divine wisdom, and therefore they're worthy to judge the people. This isn't something specific to Israel. This is something right. that was known throughout the ancient uh, Near East. Now, John Walton, in his thought, uh, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament, uh, he notes that this wisdom was not connected to any kind of moral or ethical behavior. This kind of wisdom was about what was doing expedient. It was more the idea of being clever and being able to gain power over one's enemies. And, of course, this contrast with the wisdom that Yahweh gives. Excuse me. He doesn't have to be clever 
in order to to have authority. Right. And he's definitely not in competition with the other gods. So when um, when Yahweh gives wisdom, it's not something to be guarded. It's not something to be hoarded. It's not something that you have to somehow keep to yourself. And that was something that was common. Yeah, well, no, it, it that makes sense because as you're you're talking about this idea of it not being something that you have to keep to yourself, I mean, Paul talks about this in the New Testament about other teachers who are who are peddling secret wisdom or or secret knowledge, and that you know he talks about everything Jesus did. He did it in public. He did it in front of everyone else, and it wasn't it wasn't anything that you know that that people had to go and and learn a secret language or secret codes or anything like that. Um, and I and I think that that's really interesting that we have so many people who want to get into Bible code stuff. It's oh, like, right. no, literally Paul talks against this type of thing. Uh, well, and, and that was that was the beauty of what was going on with Solomon and throughout the Bible. When God dispenses wisdom, it becomes a source of wisdom for all humanity. It, it, yes, it may come through one primary conduit, be it a king or a judge or something like that. But the point is, it's supposed to then be dispersed and disseminated among the masses so that they become better, they become wiser. And mm-hmm. the thing is, with, within Judaism, wisdom is inextricably linked to God's moral and ethical laws. There, wisdom is not just being clever, it is actually knowing how to honor God through honoring his commands. And so... Um, it's not necessarily that it's not necessarily that the people have to have some kind of wisdom in order to contact the god it's that being in contact with god brings wisdom and so um we don't find that as part of the the traditional a and e culture the a and e culture is completely backwards so solomon obviously I mean he's he's blessed with divine wisdom we've already established that the text has already established that and it's fitting that he would act as a judge for the people but we're beginning to see where solomon is allowing his ideas of uh, judgment and wisdom and his sense of self as a king they're beginning to be influenced and they're being influenced by other ideologies and theologies that are around him probably most likely by pharaoh we've already talked about how pharaoh has been showing up in very simple things um you know this is his father-in-law at this point he's married pharaoh's daughter it was probably in pursuit of some kind of peace agreement some trade deal and, you know, Solomon has already been noted as gathering up horses and chariots. Where do you get horses and chariots? From Egypt. Uh, mm-hmm. He's got a big, a big number of those, a large number of those. Um, he has enslaved people, essentially, in order to complete building projects. The only other person in the Bible who does this is Pharaoh. And, and Joseph. And, and Joseph in Egypt. So, yeah. yeah. And so you've got this in, you know, you've got this kind of overlap where you're, you're seeing just these hints, these little glimmers. And we can see how this Egyptian influence can easily interfere with God's design for kingship. And because um, there's some ideas that kind of seem to align. There's some ideas that seem to have the proper terminology and, and they seem to look like they fit because Pharaoh was believed to be a son of God. He was the son of Horus or Ra, depending on the time period. And this is what legitimized his claim to the throne. Well, in Second uh, Samuel 7, God says about Solomon, about David's son, that he will be a father. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This legitimizes Solomon's claim to the throne. So these ideas seem to line up very well, and they seem to be almost identical, but we're go- they're not, <laughs> you know, it, mm-hmm. when we're going to talk about why they're not. But then we've got, you know, a divine or semi-divine being uh, in the Pharaoh. He has access to the wisdom of the gods in order to rule, and he can defend the uh, his country and his people against outside threats in the form of chaos. And he's supposed to 
help keep chaos at bay by dispensing this wisdom that allows people to have power and to have uh, some kind of edge in whatever they're doing so that they aren't overtaken. Solomon has access to divine wisdom, and he is able to dispense um, wisdom to his people. Now, Pharaoh's wisdom is for the purpose of keeping outside chaos from coming in. It's in order to keep invaders out of the country. It's to keep attacks from overpowering him. Solomon has wisdom, but God has given Solomon peace all around. God has been the one who has stopped these attacks, these chaotic attacks by outsiders. So there's a distinction there. And, you know, the peace is not something that Solomon creates or preserves or even defends. It's something that is a direct gift from God. So Pharaoh's responsible for the care, growth, and the beautification of the city. And the reason why this was important in Egyptian um, culture is the cities were believed to have been founded and built by the God it served. And it's often mm-hmm. believed that the city was the, the precise spot where this God came into being, that this is where he either emerged from the earth, was dropped from the heavens, was birthed, or what have you. It didn't matter, just some supernatural event that allowed a God to to take up residence here. And the humans had to maintain this spot. They had to care for the needs of these gods. They had to clothe the gods. They had to feed the gods. They had to provide the gods with sexual consorts. Um, This resulted in these elaborate temples and other structures where the humans were able to carry out these duties. And Solomon, you know, he also built a temple. He's also in charge of the beautification and care of the city. But... Mm -hmm. The the similarity here is that Jerusalem had always been this place that was known to worship Yahweh. That that started all the way back in Abraham's day when Melchizedek, the king of, of Salem or Jerusalem, came and pronounced God's blessing on Abraham. And Solomon, it was doing something that seemed very similar, but the thing is, he's not meeting God's needs. He's not taking care of God in order to empower a God to keep chaos at bay. What Solomon's doing, he's actually creating a place where the people can meet with God to have their needs met. And so it's this idea of communion with the divine, not the need to serve as in care for the divine in order to keep them strong enough to maintain order. It's a Mm -hmm. very subtle distinction. God does not need humanity to empower him to, to... take to be God. And that's essentially yeah. what was happening in Egypt. Yeah, and, and two of my favorite writers um, write about this. <laughs> uh, Louis Lamora and Neil Gaiman uh, put those two together. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it, in The Lonesome Gods, um, Louis Lamora, uh, and in uh, American Gods, mm-hmm. uh, Louis Lamora and, and Neil Gaiman both talk about the idea that um, as ancient gods are no longer worshipped, they lose their power. Right. And this is a pretty universally understood concept. Yes. Uh, but it's in, in ancient culture, we mm-hmm. don't really think about it so much in, in the Western world, but that's very much a, uh, a thing that in order to, to gain power, these gods have to be worshipped. And in Judaism and Christianity, we don't worship God to give him more power. Correct. We, we worship God because he's worthy of it. Exactly. And in these other religions, you have your ceremonies and your rituals, and that's to empower your God or to let him come and and do what he wants to do. Uh, So, yeah, that's interesting uh, parallel there. Yeah, well, and if you if you notice, a lot of the ideas seem so similar and, and they seem like if just on the surface, they don't look like they're that different. And, and if we're going to be 100% honest, this is where we get ourselves into trouble today. It's when there seems to be a good concept and we misapply it or we don't, mm-hmm. you know, we don't get the nuances of what's going on. and that, or, we re- or we react against it. Or we react against it. And so there's, this is what's happening. Solomon is doing, quote unquote, what's right. And to the outside world, even his father-in-law, Pharaoh, it would look like the right thing to do. But Pharaoh probably doesn't get 
these little distinctions in in how it's actually done, you know, and why it's actually done. And when you get to to too kind of lazy with your theology, when you you aren't considering the, these nuances and being very responsible in order to represent what you're doing well or to do what God has commanded well with the proper motivation, with the proper heart, it doesn't matter if you're doing the right thing. The end result's going to be something other than what you should have been doing. And that that's mm-hmm. that's the thing with Solomon. He's kind of he's teetering. We're we're seeing these little these little cracks in the facade of this great and mighty Solomon, which is exactly what the writer of Kings wants you to see. He wants you to see how Solomon's heart is being swayed, it's being divided, and how this is going to lead to a divided kingdom. And so um and, and I want I want to put this warning out there. If you decide to read American Gods, if you haven't, <laughs> it's pretty disturbing in places. Yeah. Um, uh, Lonesome Gods by Louis L'Amour, not so disturbing. Absolutely. Um, I'd recommend that book to anyone. Yeah, that one. Yeah, I would read that to my children mm-hmm. um, in, in a second. But uh, American Gods, no. I mean, you need to be, uh, you know, in your 30s, I think, before you should read that. <laughs> <Right>. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, but it, it's, it's, it's pretty rough in some places. So we have so some Kabbalistic... Um, standards be, there. <laughs> yeah, be forewarned. Uh, it's rough. I'm not recommending everyone read it. It's right. just an interest. The concept is explored in some interesting ways in the book. Exactly. Well, yeah, and you know, and that's where we got to be careful because uh, this actually ties in with with Solomon. Where we get hit with temptation or get led astray is when we think we're smart enough to handle something that we shouldn't be handling. So, you know, if you've got, it's a matter of conscience, if God has, uh, you know, stirred in your spirit, no, these things are off limits. Uh, listen, don't think, well, I'm smart enough, I'm mature enough, I'm whatever enough to to get by with this. That That's not how we should be operating, because this is where Solomon gets himself in trouble. He's smart enough to do, quote unquote, the right thing. And by ancient Near Eastern standards, everything Solomon does is correct. Mm-hmm. It's just not lining up with what God would have him do. And that's that's a minor distinction, but it's a major distinction because when I say it's minor, on the surface, it looks minor. The end result is major. So, you know, we need to be careful. I know anytime that I've had a problem mm-hmm. and, and like gotten into any kind of sin in my own life, it's because I thought I was smart enough to handle whatever situation I was putting myself in. And I wasn't. And so we we need to be aware of that. But the the other part of this equation is we need to look at where and how the temple and the palace were oriented in relationship to each other. Um, most commentators believe that they were in close proximity, that they would have been very, very near to each other. And this meant that it would have been very clear to the people, anyone approaching the temple or the palace would have immediately seen this awe-inspiring palace that with all its grandeur and all of its size, it, it would have caught their eye. And the only reason why the temple might catch more of their attention is because it might have gold. And we don't know if it was on the outside or not. That's still a matter of debate. But the idea that you would see these two buildings side by side and immediately you'd make that contrast in your brain. Nobody would have to say a word for you to look at the two buildings and think who was the mo- more important, who who deserved more honor and respect. And because... Well, and... Okay, so in, in a lot of ancient cultures, it was... It was kind of uh, assumed that if you went to a city, you would go and pay respects to the local deity. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, did Judaism do that same sort of thing? No, uh, not so much. They were they were a little more exclusive mm-hmm. with their religious practices than a lot of the other ancient cultures. Right. And so I kind of wonder if there's some of that going on, that it's like— I hadn't thought of that. Um, not to, you know, that the temple maybe on the outside doesn't look, I mean, it looks like a temple, but it doesn't look so much like a place where just anyone's invited in to come serve the God. Um, so it's an interesting thought. I kind of wonder if there's some of that going on. Um, the other thought that I had is kind of practicality. Um, (laughs) you know, Solomon has to have some place to put all those concubines. (laughs) Um, 
you know, he's a he's a busy dude. Um, apparently, politically and otherwise. Um, so you know, that's another thought that I had uh, when we were talking about the size of the the palace there, uh, versus the the temple. Oh, there would definitely be some logistics, but you also can remember that people would would. You know, this the temple was supposed to be functioning where people would bring their animals to be slaughtered day after day right. in out, you know, in and out all the time. And and we also need to note that just because Solomon may not have used gold as his uh, finish on his his temple, mm-hmm. we have reason to believe that the the Jude- the Judean kings, the Judean kings, the traditional finish for their the outside of their temple for their palaces would have been a vermilion a, a bright scarlet red and so um there's a, a passage in jeremiah that says basically woe to you who says i will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms who cuts and uh, cuts out windows for it paneling it with cedar and painting it vermilion his own house where he was to dwell and the others could um and the other Good grief. <laughs> uh, court, oh, sorry, there Curtains. we go. His own house where he was to dwell and the other court back of the hall was like, oh, I'm, I okay, yeah, I definitely need, need uh, curtains. Okay, so Jeremiah notes that the kings did paint red. We do have some archaeological finds where there's some wood and it, it still has some of this red paint. It's from a, a palace of a Judean king and I forgot to write the name down. So, there is definitely, um, you know, it would have been eye-catching. If you've got a red mm-hmm. palace, that would have just stood out. So verse 8, talking about Solomon again, says his own house when he, where he was to dwell and the other court back of the hall was like the workmanship Solomon also made like a, a like hall for Pharaoh's daughter he had taken in marriage. So um, basically... To catch you up, in case you've lost track, he's built his Hall of Judgment. He's got this uh, Hall of the Throne with a massive porch. He's built a palace for Pharaoh's daughter and his own palace. And so the writers let you know Solomon's done a lot for himself. He's done a lot for his family. And it does seem that Pharaoh's daughter is the primary queen that because she does receive her own palace, she has her own space. I was just space. about to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, and we're never really told that, you know, she is, that she is the queen. Because what we would think as the woman uh, fulfilling the queen's role in ancient Israel actually would have been the mother of the queen. But she would have been like the primary wife. And so... Um, Kind of some interesting things going on there because we're never told her name. We're never told anything really about her. And so there's also the possibility that if she wasn't the primary wife, she was at least a wife whose father was significant enough that Solomon felt like he had to keep her and his father-in-law happy. So mm-hmm. verse 9 says, All these were made a costly stone according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. So costly stones. This is either a marble or some other valuable stone, uh, something we would still consider to be at least a semi-precious stone. Um, they're large. They're heavy stones. This would have made them even more costly. And so the the point is... Nope, I think I lost you. So we're back. We had some technical difficulty. Um, we need to get uh, OEC or, I guess, Lake Region for you to, to get the fiber out to your house. Yes. Um, There's trucks with cables yesterday, so that'll be good. So verse 9, that's where we're going to pick up. And I'm just going to read that again because I don't know how much you got of that. Um, it, it, it tells us that all of these, you know, all these buildings that Solomon had made were made of costly stone according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping and from the outside to the great court. So these costly stones, this would have been marble, this would have been granite, this would have been, you know, anything that basically we would reserve for countertops today. You know, it wouldn't have been Mm -hmm. something that you would have covered your entire house with. And they were costly, too, because they were large. And you know this is still true today. If you try to get a slab, a a single slab for an island or something in your kitchen, you're going to pay more than just enough to do a little small space. and. Mm -hmm. So there is an argument that some people make, actually, that uh, they weren't costly because they were semi-precious stones. They're costly because they were large. 
it doesn't have one doesn't have to exclude the other. We still know that this is very true today. So verse 10, it says the foundation was of costly stones, stones of eight and 10 cubits. So we definitely have, you know, reason to think that large is part of the equation. Maybe not all of the equation, but part of the uh, equation. Verse 11, and above were costly stones cut according to measure and cedar. And the great court had courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. And so had the inner court of the house of the Lord, the vestibule of the house. So we have this very pointed comparison here that Solomon's house had costly stones and cedar beams. So did the house of the Lord. Solomon was building a house that looked a lot like the temple. He was creating homes for each that looked very similar. So um, the question is, is Solomon building a temple to God and a temple to himself? Is the palace more than just a building to live? And the writer has kind of left this open for us to ask these questions and to to ask ourselves, is it appropriate for Solomon to spend so much time and money on his own home in comparison to the temple? And so, and I think that's a question we still wrestle with today. I think that's a question that's still a part of our, our quandary as Christians. How much money do we invest in the big church building? Uh, how much money do we invest in the, the great big sign out front? How much money do we put towards the sound system? How much, you know, all of these questions versus how much money do we use to feed the poor? How much money do we, you know, use for community outreach programs? Those kinds of questions are still something that we have to ask ourselves. And, and I don't think there's like a definite right or wrong I don't think we can say, oh, if you've got a church, then you shouldn't spend, you know, just throw up a metal building. You know, you can meet in a barn, which is absolutely true. You can. Um, but at the same time, is there a time for us to invest more to create something that's beautiful and awe-inspiring and just the being in that space reminds us to worship and to to turn our eyes and our hearts towards God? Because the the space in which we worship does influence our perceptions it influences how we how we think about things and that's been proven over and over again we can't ignore that fact so um after we're told this and ending with that pointed comparison we the writer moves us back in to the accoutrements for the temple and this is where i have to admit that i made a mistake okay so i'm going to eat a little crow here because I had said that the only people in the Bible who were described as having wisdom, knowledge, and intelligence were Solomon and Bezalel. Well, you know, I learned something new every day. Uh, I learned that here in Kings, we actually have another guy who has the exact same description. And uh, we're going to talk about him. So we're going to pick up in verse 13. It says, And King Solomon sent and brought. Hiram of Tyre. Now, this is not Hiram, king of Tyre. This is a completely different person. Verse 14, it says, He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill. Same words that we find for Bezalel. I always go with wisdom, knowledge, and intelligence. Um, there's some debate on exactly how to, to translate those. I think that's the best translation. But for making work in bronze, he came to King Solomon and did all his work. So the writer goes to great lengths to make sure that we understand this is not the king of Tyre. It's the same name, but I mean, good grief. How many people do we have named John? And we all know they're different people. This shouldn't, mm -hmm. shouldn't be a problem for us. Yeah. <laughs> the description actually... Like I, can, I can name three people named Ty <laughs> off the top of my head. About seven named David. I mean, this, this is without even looking through my phone. Right. Like, just people I know. Exactly. I mean, the, we just go through periods of time where names are more popular. When I was growing up, I didn't know any Emily's. Now moms are yelling at Emily's in the grocery store, and I'm flinching trying to figure out what I did wrong. And, right. you know, I don't like it. Uh, quit naming your children. No, I'm kidding. Name your kids what you like. But, uh, you know, it, names go through times of popularity. So in 
Second Chronicles, uh, we actually have another description of Hiram, and I'm going to read that because it's a little different. Uh, this is uh, Second Chronicles 2, 13 and 14. It says, Now I sent, and this is the king of King Hiram of Tyre, writing back to Solomon. It says, Now I have sent a skilled man who has understanding, Harum, and if you look in the ESV, it has a different spelling, H-U-R-A-M, um, hyphen, a B. A B is uh, father in in uh, Hebrew, and it, it designates somebody who's a master in what they're doing. It doesn't necessarily mean he's a father. It's saying that he was really good. And it says, so Harum, Abi, the son of the woman of a daughter of Dan, and his father, a man of Tyre, he is trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, ironstone, and wood, and purple, and blue, and crimson fabrics, fine linen, to do all sorts of engravings and execute any design that may be assigned to him with your craftsmen and the craftsmen of my Lord David, your father. So, pretty different descriptions here. And we need to address what the differences are because, once again, Oh my goodness, now we're back to, there's contradictions in the Bible, you can't trust it. Um, <laughs> so, first of all, the difference in the spelling of the name. Totally not unusual in ancient Near Eastern culture because they didn't have vowels in ancient Greek, in ancient Phoenician. You wrote with the, um, with the consonants. And so, we have this... Uh, spelling of what we call Hiram, preserved both in um, Phoenician and in uh, other sources in different cultures. This is a common variation. It's just something that's very, very familiar. And, you know, leave it to a king not to bother to figure out how to spell a guy's name right or to change the spelling so it's not the same as the king. So the king remains his, retains his distinct identity. Um, and in Chronicles, it simply says that he's skilled. And it's probably to avoid making any kind of comparison with this this worker, this this, you know, craftsman. And Solomon, who is wise, because we've got to preserve Solomon's image in Chronicles, where in Samuel, we don't care. Um, his mother is identified as belonging to Dan in Second Chronicles, where uh, it's Naphtali in, um, in Kings. So just major distinction there. And his list of, dis- of qualifications in Chronicles is far more distinctive than in First Kings. In First Kings, it's just about the bronze work. So uh, another really interesting distinction is that in Chronicles, Hiram sends, in Kings, Solomon takes. So there's a few ways that we can um, resolve these conflicts. And the, the big one being, first of all, that his mother is identified as being from two different tribes. There's a couple of different solutions there. They all work. I mean, let's, they all make sense and they're all in keeping with that time period. Um, it's possible that his mother was a descendant from both tribes, that she had a, you know, her mother was from Naphtali and her father was from Dan. At this point in history, the maternal um, lineage was not the defining factor of who was a Jew and who wasn't. That will, won't come into play until later. So, her, that's a possibility that she had birthrights to both those tribes. Uh, it's possible that her mother was from the tribe of Dan, but lived in the region where Naphtali was allotted. And we know that the writer of Samuel slash Kings, this is something that he's done before, where he will identify someone, not necessarily according to lineage, but according to where they were living geographically. And so we've, we've seen that in previous stories. So it makes sense that here in Kings, he would do the same thing. And the writer in Chronicles says, hey, let's be a little bit more accurate with the lineage because Chronicles is all about the lineage. And it takes you all the way back you know, from the time of the Kings, traces it back to Adam. So you, you understand that there's this continuity. And so they would have been more careful with um, the family trees, so to speak. But then... Why do we have this um, different descriptor? Uh, is 
why why is it such an issue? So Raymond B. Dillard, he's the author of the uh, Word Bible Commentary on Second Chronicles, and he says it's clear that the chronicler has assigned a Hiram of B as a Danite ancestry to further perfect the parallel with Holiab. Oh, Holiab. Sorry, that one's always a hard name for me to say. And rabbinic exegesis recognized this connection and viewed Hiram Abib as a descendant of Aholiab. Um, Solomon is being cast in Chronicles as a descendant of Bezalel. They're both from the tribe of Judah. Aholiab and uh, Hiram are both from the tribe of Dan, according to Chronicles. And the chronicler expands Hiram's skills and with not just what he can do, but what mediums he can work with to demonstrate that he has the same capabilities as the Holiab, uh, who we find in Exodus as the the co-worker with Bezalel. And any study of Dan opens up this giant can of worms. It, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, because I was like, okay, we're, you know, what happened with the, the city of Dan and uh, this tribe of Dan and how would that have been significant? Um, and honestly, everything I kept looking up, I kept ending up in Revelation. And this one big question that people are trying to answer is why isn't the tribe of Dan mentioned in Revelation when we get to the 144,000 Jews? And oh my goodness, there's some out their theories, uh, the Antichrist is supposed to come from the tribe of Dan, uh, was one of them. But uh, what I found to be really uh, interesting is that Dan is supposed to have disappeared from the Bible, the biblical text, because they were absorbed by the Phoenicians. Tyre is a Phoenician city. And if you look at the few descriptions we have of Dan, because the Bible really doesn't talk a lot about Dan. Um, one of those places would be Deborah's song. She scolds Dan for staying with their ships. The Phoenicians were known for being seafaring people. Um, then we have this this woman, and she's married to a man from Tyre. So she's evidently, you know, beginning this process of assimilating to Phoenician culture. I think that uh, supports that theory. And that would be a really good, I think, actually a very... Um, defendable theory about what happened to Dan because Dan is completely disappears from the biblical text and is replaced by Manasseh in um, Revelation. So we, we see that um, there is this friendly, very friendly relationship between Israel and Phoenicia. I mean, that's exactly what's going on here with Hiram, king of Tyre and Solomon. Hiram's calling David his friend and it could be that this very friendly relationship that Israel developed with Phoenicia is part of the reason why Dan could disappear. It's there's this this sense that by fostering this this unique kind of relationship at the time, that it paved the way for one of the tribes to be lost. And so, um, as we follow through Scripture, what we find out is that from here on. When what talks about Dan, it, it really is as a geographic descriptor, and it's this is Second uh, Chronicles two fourteen is the last time that Dan is mentioned in any of the historical text. We we never see it again, and it's here in this description, and so um, I, I found that to be a, an interesting idea to play with. So the descriptors of Hiram 100% match the description of Bezalel in uh, Exodus 30 and 35, despite the change in the translation from uh, the uh, ESV. He's got wisdom, he's got knowledge and intelligence. He's allowed to make these artistic implements for the for the temple. And it's fitting, as these were the attributes of Bezalel, that allowed him to make the artistic implements for the t uh, tabernacle. Now, given that um, the tabernacle and the temple are crafted in such a way to make us think of images of eating, it, that we also recognize that these are the same attributes attributed to God in his creation. And so Proverbs three nineteen through 20 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, he develops... Uh, I'm sorry, by his knowledge, the deeps uh, broke open and the clouds dropped down dew. 
So um, as previously mentioned, Chronicles expands Hiram's attributes, while First Kings narrows these attributes. And the reason why they really want you to see that his, his contribution, his great contribution to the temple is specifically with the bronze implements and the bronze fixtures. And so we're going to talk very specifically about some of his bronze stuff because I, I found that to be fascinating. But the, the, final, um, the final difference is the, this taking where Solomon takes in Kings and Hiram sends in Chronicles. And um, in Chronicles, we see that the... Um, Hiram basically becomes this pawn for the kings to to pass around. You know, Solomon can can take him or Solomon can request that there be artisans from Phoenicia because they were known for being great artists, where in um kings Solomon just kind of, you know, grabs him up. And so he is not somebody who's been seen and called by God to do this. He's someone who the kings have decided to to just you know, force into this position. And that's a, that's a major difference in the way someone approaches their work. That's a major difference in how one regards their role in these projects where Bezalel, I mean, when you look at his, the folklore and the, um, the mythology that's kind of grown up around him, he was celebrated where Hiram has almost completely disappeared uh, in our in our tales of the tabernacle, you really don't hear about him. Even in Jewish um, commentaries, there's not a lot said about him other than to explain the contradictions. Now, we can't talk about Harum Abi without talking about how he is the guy who gets picked up in Freemasonry. So we, okay. yeah, we we talked earlier that King, Hiram, King of Tyre, really is not. He's not the guy that is told talked about in the Freemasonry lore. Um, in the third degree ritual of Freemasonry, it's this guy's death that is reenacted in their initiation or whatever they're doing. Um, and it's presented as if it's fact. It's presented as if this is a historical event that totally shaped the the way Freemasonry is practiced and why it exists and blah, blah, blah. Um, I just want to point out one thing, and it is easy to disprove that Freemasonry has any kind of historical value. It, it, it's all myth. It's fan fiction um, because they claim that this Hiram Abi, and they, they change it to Hiram Abif, and I read some articles that said that the Hiram Abif actually was something that um, Martin Luther introduced when he did his translation of the Bible. I can't read German, so I couldn't double check that. Uh, I saw that several places, though, so it might be true. Maybe some of our German friends can help us out or friends who speak German. But in Freemasonry, they say that Hiram Abiff is the architect of the temple, that he's the guy who designed it. We are very clearly shown in Scripture that the temple, the building where the architect would have worked and would have been necessary and needed is completed before he's brought onto the scene. So he's not an architect. He builds the furnishings. He builds the ornamentation. He is, that, that's two totally different jobs. And so we can't fall for the line, oh, look, he's in the Bible. This supports that what we're doing as Freemasons is actually biblical and it's good and what have you. No, this is a perversion of the text in order to fit a narrative that they have already lined up. So, and that, you know, that may sound a little harsh, but we, we have to avoid, and I have to work at this too, and I'm not, you know, throwing stones at anyone. We have to avoid twisting a text to suit a narrative we like or serves us. We need to be okay with the text saying what it is. And when those kinds of revelations come out that, oh, he wasn't an architect, we can go, someone lied to me. Someone mm -hmm. misrepresented the truth. And if someone has to lie to you in order to get you to adhere or to agree to their, their standards and mindsets and ideologies, 
what do you want to have to do with them? Why would you want to be a part of such an organization? Right. You, you know, it's like, it's so simple. And, you know, people will ask, well, you know, why do we need to study our Bible? I mean, we know God loves us. We know that he wants us to be in heaven with us. He, we know that he forgives sins. That's all I really need to, to know. Well, there are some actual things that we need to know. And most of the time, those things are, you know, how to live and how to make proper decisions based on his word. And we can save ourselves so much time, hassle and heartache and frustration if we just know what his word actually says. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was a really, you know, it's such a clear cut example. And, you know, I just, I don't want anything to do with an organization that's going to lie to me. I, I, I just don't. And right. so... If the because you know if that's your introduction to to this organization, it, it's a lie. You can't tell me it's going to get better the deeper you go. You know, right? So, anyhow, um, we got a few minutes more. Uh, verses fifteen to twenty. I'm not going to read these because they're pretty much just archaeological uh, architectural. Yeah, there's that word. Uh, They're descriptions. They've got architectural terms in them. They're descriptions of what the building process looked like. They are really confusing. I looked up and I was trying to find some, you know, some representation of what these pillars that, that Hiram is going to build, what they might have looked like. And I saw at least 20 different possibilities, depending on how people read it. I'm going to sneeze. Took me a second to realize what you were going to say. <laughs> yep. Uh, the sun shining right in my face. But so it, there, the fact that we have so many possibilities for how they could look based on the way people read this, I don't think it's something that we're going to ever clearly define. I think we get an idea of scope. We get an idea of, of kind of what they were supposed to add to the, the temple itself. And so um, to me, that's not the important part. The, the final look with the lattice work and all the stuff, I think there's elements within this, these verses that we can look at, pull out and look at that can give us a little bit more understanding. But as far as just reading through it, it's just confusing and would sound like gobbledygook. And I'm doing a good enough job of that today. I feel like I'm just tripping over my words. But uh, so we, we've got this um, description of these pillars and depending on what translation you're you're grading you're reading they're either bronze or they're copper and we're going to talk about um the differences there and they have filigree they got lattice work they have pomegranates and they have these lily uh, finials and then we're told in verse 23 that there's there's a sea uh that is a bronze sea the brazen sea we if you grew up in church you've heard about this and almost everything in there, um, every commentator agrees that the sea is bronze, but not every commentator agrees that the pillars were bronze. And so I want to take both of these ideas, uh, the sea and the pillars, and I want to talk about why they probably, <clears throat> excuse me, why they probably were bronze, because if you can solve the riddle with one, it solves the riddle for the other because the same word, the same Hebrew word, nekoshet, is um, used in both. However, that word also encompasses the copper and the bronze, and it can also encompass brass. Um, copper was a mineral that was mined in Israel in Solomon's day. It was very plentiful. It was not something that uh, they had to scrounge around for. And matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 8, 9, it's promised, it's one of the promised elements within the land whenever they move into Israel, which I, I thought this was interesting because I never noticed this before. And it says, a land which I will give you, in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you will dig copper. So copper is part of the blessing of God, which I thought that was really interesting. In this context, Nekoshet absolutely has to mean copper because you don't dig bronze out of the ground. You only dig copper. Uh, bronze is an alloy. It's composed of copper and tin. It, it, the two of them are combined together in order to, to create uh, bronze. And 
just while we're at it, and let's put this to bed, uh, brass is made by combining copper and zinc. And it, it was occasionally done in ancient times, but almost certainly by accident because zinc wasn't even identified as an element until the 19th century. So, um, yeah, and what would have happened is they would have managed to get charcoal in with the copper in order to create brass. And so um, not something that was done, it wasn't done a lot. It it just very happened very, very rarely in the Old Testament uh, during those ancient times. So it's possible that, yeah, it could be referring to brass, but probably not. The Hmm. odds are not good. So, um, and when we're looking at copper and brass, logistically bronze, oh, sorry, not brass, copper and bronze, as far as being the building materials for these pillars or for the sea, bronze is going to be the one that makes the most sense. Bronze is the one that um, would actually be more suitable for these kinds of projects. Uh, It's harder than copper alone, so it it has an enduring quality about it that copper just doesn't have. It also, when you heat it up to its melting point, it expands. Now, if you're pouring something into a mold, you want something that's going to expand just a little bit because, one, it it fills the mold. It makes sure that it gets into all of the little detail work, which we know there's going to be detail work, and we're going to talk about that. But then as it cools, it contracts. And as it contracts, that means that now it comes free of the mold and you can reuse the mold. So it's actually mm-hmm. more expedient to use bronze. Uh, it's, it's easier to, to maintain and clean than copper. If you have anything made of copper, even pennies, you know that they get dirty really quickly. They, they, they corrode. They, mm-hmm. they start to build up you know, the, the tarnish. Um, Relative to a lot of other metals, um, it has a fairly low melting point, which means you can get a lot of fine details from it because it's going to um, it's going to remain liquid when you do pour it. It's not going to set as quickly as other metals um, because and because it is harder, it's going to retain those details. So, textual support for it being um, for it actually being bronze, and, it, and I'm looking at time here, so I'm just going to rush through this right quick, is First uh, Kings 7. Uh, so the textual support for bronze being the proper translation in First Kings 7 is based on the fact that the author uses the same Hebrew word for the sea and the pillar. So it's the same word. I mentioned that before. And the writer of Chronicles, and it says in First Chronicles 18.8, specifically says they're made out of the same material. So it's not the co- pillars are copper. And the the sea is bronze. Like some translations do have that. That would be I, I don't see any way that would be correct or why we would want to go that way. Um, in Exodus thirty seventeen through twenty one, and then again in forty thirty through thirty two, we have a similar kind of vessel as the sea that's being made, and we're going to talk more about it in detail. But it was similar, and it was also similar in function. And it was made by the bronze mirrors that the women collected from their neighbors when they left Egypt. And bronze mirrors from Egypt are something that we have. uh, If you look it up online, there are so many examples that have been dug up. And I mean, they're from a later time. But Egypt was known for having bronze mirrors all the way back to 2900 BCE. And then we have a similar vessel as the sea on display, which I would absolutely love to see this. It's at the Delphi Museum in Greece, and it's dated to approximately 800 BCE, and uh, it's made out of bronze also. And then, of course, we have the famous story in uh, Numbers 21 where uh, Moses makes the bronze serpent. What's fascinating about that is uh, there was an archaeological dig in Timnah. This is the ancient home of the Midianites. This is where Moses' wife would have lived. She was a Midianite. And there was a structure very similar to the tabernacle that was being excavated, and they found inside of it a bronze serpent. So we we have something very similar. Um, the, The bronze was was very highly utilized at this point in time for cultic items. And that was before and after Solomon's time. So it's most likely based on how the, the, the Bible uh, 
is using the words and the context and also from archaeological finds that this is bronze, it's not copper. And so I I do find things like that to be interesting because those are puzzles I can put together and I can go, here here's a rational reasonable solution that's supported in a two or three different ways and I don't see any reason to deviate it. I don't like those those things where I can't go where, where I don't have those little bits of evidence to point to. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so um but I think that we'll probably leave off there and then next week we'll get into um some more specifics about the pillars themselves and into that bronze sea. What was it and what it looked like? And mm-hmm. I mean, there are elements that until I sat down and started doing some math, I, I know it's scary. I can actually do some simple arithmetic. I did not realize how impressive they were. Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> curious more about why it's there. I'm hoping we get into some of that later on. Um, but uh, rather than just, you know, metallurgy. Uh, <laughs> what? That's fascinating. I mean, it is to a degree, but um, yeah, I think I think there's other things that are more interesting to me. But, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of along. Well, well these, are so, the pillars, uh, these are the pillars that everybody knows as Jaikin and Boaz. And so, yeah, we will talk about, you know, what, why? What could these possibly mean? And we're going to talk about some theories about their origin and use that are 100% crackpot theories that just you know you can reject right out so (laughs) well everyone uh hope you're on for uh on board for that and we'll see everybody next week um thanks for joining us if you want to be part of the conversation raven creek sc is where you can find us on social media ravencreeksc.com is the website that gets you to uh this and other shows and um we will uh look forward to uh coming back next week and uh till then have a good time Bye. bye You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.